You're listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation podcast network, hosted by Blake Murphy 7 and Johnny Touchdown. All about your Arizona Cardinals. Hello, welcome into the Revenge of the Birds podcast. My name is Blake Murphy on Twitter at Blake Murphy Seven. Uh, we cover the Arizona Cardinals as part of the SB Nation podcast network, and uh, I'm joined as by my co-host, the Venerable John Venerable, as well as our guest today from Revenge of the Birds, our staff writer Walter Mitchell. Um, he's joined us a lot in the past. Uh, we just absolutely love his breakdown of the Cardinals being able to get not just a context for the organization as he's a longtime fan but uh, just to be able to look at currently where the team is set up and uh walter welcome into the show uh, how are you doing and how did you take the uh, disappointing last two games of the cardinal season that led to them being essentially it seemed like a playoff shoe into being out of the playoffs yeah thank you blake and johnny for having me on the show um and uh, it was agonizing, as we all, you know, saw. Um, you know, particularly, I mean, if I connected some dots, was, you know, I think the Cardinals have serious practice issues. Um, and that usually shows up on weeks where there are distractions. And the Cardinals went a whopping 0-4 on, in distraction weeks. The week following the bye, they lost to the Dolphins at home. The week on Thanksgiving, they lost to the Patriots in Foxborough. The week during Christmas, they got whooped on by the 49ers, who really had nothing to play for. And the week during New New Year's, they got pasted again by the Rams and a backup quarterback. They win one of those games and they're in the playoffs and they were all four games where um, the Cardinals were favored or at least close to being favored because of the backup quarterback situations for one. And, and, you know, um, and with two only starting his second game and not having really a great first game. Um, so that was disappointing in that respect. And also the common denominator in those games, whether people want to face it or not, is our superstar wide receiver who wants to take Wednesdays off was shut down in all four of those games. Shut down by by um, Xavier Howard. Shut down by Stephon, Stephon Gilmore. Shut down by um, Jason Verrett. And shut down by Jalen Ramsey for the second time this season. And so that was very difficult to watch. It was also painful to watch the same old, same old um, offense with little variation to help Hopkins get free. Um, And, you know, week after week, not, not a lot of adjustments going on on offense. It was the same old kind of pound and ground uh, bubble screens, uh, playing within 20 yard box, um, just very, very frustrating. Not a lot of imagination. Everything opposite of what we would have expected with with the hiring of Cliff Kingsbury. And um, when we, get, you know, I want to hear your your thoughts about you know where we are with Cliff Kingsbury and, and what what's happened with him within the organization 
um, because that's going to be a really key thing moving forward is are we getting the real Cliff Kingsbury or some, you know, I was thinking the analogy I would make is that, you know, if he was a, you know, play calling Rembrandt, he's been reduced to a play calling color by numbers guy. Um, and uh, it's very frustrating to watch this offense just kind of, um, you know, be led by rote and by um, influenced by other factors. John, why don't you talk a little bit on that as far as just the confidence, maybe not just of the fan base with the Cardinals, but it, it feels very much like there was a huge turning point of the season with these last few games, and then watching the Cardinals get, you know, uh, felt like the either the talent on the team was not up to par, but especially it felt like the Cardinals were outcoached by division rivals in both of those games, and I think that's why a lot of fans are concerned about the direction of the franchise as we enter year three. Yeah, and I would I would agree with m- most of what Walter had alluded to. You know, I think with regard to Hopkins and some inconsistencies over the second half of the season, I mean, it's possible for outside of one to two guys in the NFL, I mean, the way Devontae Adams is playing right now, I mean, receivers can be taken away, and that's why it's important to have multifaceted, multidimensional offenses. Um, and the Cardinals are very much a one-trick pony. They are um, very difficult to stop when Kyler Murray is playing elite-level football and kind of backyard football that we saw over the first course of the, you know, two-thirds of the season, probably first half of the season, um, and especially that when that Hopkins connection is going, it's as deadly as any combo in the league, but they had nothing else to lean on. They The running game was non-existent. Uh, especially the second half of this year, and that's really disappointing after how well they ran the football a year ago. Um, So why Cliff Kingsbury didn't make that as much of a priority or the fact he was not able to get the same energy and enthusiasm from his players in the running game as 2019 with, you could argue, lesser talent, I think that that's that's head-scratching. And then, of course, you know we've talked about it, Blake at nauseum, the secondary and third options at receiver, are just not good enough for this team to be able to con- consistently compete for, you know, not even championships, but playoff bursts. I mean, they did not have a reliable number two receiver on the on the roster this year. And you can blame Christian Kirk and roughly his 250 yards over the final eight games. You can blame schematics like Walter mentioned, Cliff Kingsbury f- failing to adapt and evolve to his personnel. I, I would say all of the above. So I-, I just think they need to figure out a way to evolve. Um, and that's maybe the most frustrating part for me is that I saw Cliff Kingsbury evolve as a rookie head coach when you could argue he was playing with some house money and didn't have a ton to lose. And I go back to that Thursday night game against San Francisco on Halloween and the fact that they, you know, became much more of a running team. You know, the, the hits were greatly reduced on Kyler. I mean, they played better football over the second half of 2019. And then you look at what happened this year, and it just really felt like when the when push came to shove and they needed to punch their ticket to the dance, they could not lean on their head coach to get them there. And he could not put together a game plan to punch his ticket each of the final two weeks. And you could argue they, they were embarrassed over those final two weeks. And I think that's what's so disheartening if you're a fan of this team right now is, you know, who's to say they don't get off to another fast start next year? What's going to prevent them from, you know, for lack of a better term, just vomiting all over themselves, you know, fa- fa- failing to make the postseason yet again. You know, I put out a little article on revengeofthebirds.com about Kyler Murray and the fact that 
you know, he could potentially be looking at 0 for 3 when it comes to playoff bursts if, if they don't make it next year and why history is not kind to, to those individuals. You've got a lot of Sam Darnolds. You've got some Johnny Manziels on that list, um, Blake Bortles. And again, Kyler, Jameis Winston, Kyler has nothing to do with those names on that list. And while Kyler could have played better over the second half of the season, I think 99% of folks would tell you it was because of personnel and it was because of coaching. And then you see the fact that, you know, Baker Mayfield's in the playoffs and Mitch Trubisky is in the playoffs again. You know, Kirk Cousins consistently makes the postseason. And you just look at this team and you're like, they have these ingredients that you would categorize with success. They've got, you know, a, a 12 and a half sack edge rusher and they've got some really nice pieces in all pro safety. Their offensive line played really well for much of the year, and they gave up this, the second least amount of hits on all pro football. They've got Hopkins. Edmonds and Drake both eclipsed four yards per carry, and Edmonds was a really nice player for them. And they just, to go two and five over your final seven games of the season and to, to fall to 0 and 4 after you started 2 and 0 in the division. It's disheartening, and it's and it's. I we've talked about it previously. It it makes me sad for the fan base because you won't believe that this team is anything but fool's gold until they are in the playoffs, and I fully believe that. I think they're going to go out and they're going to make some additions this off season. They're going to get people hyped up. You know, I joke about it all the time. Wouldn't be surprised if they unveiled new uniforms, and they're all in for 2021. Everybody knows Kingsbury, Kime, Vance Joseph, personnel department. Everybody is there is riding on this season. But until we see Cliff Kingsbury be able to match wits with Pete Carroll and Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan, not in September, but in the winter months when you punch your ticket to the postseason, and now there are seven spots available, we, we just have to see it done. And I think that's why it's so frustrating, because I think most people would behind closed doors would tell you that they don't believe he's good enough to get this team over the hump, over that average hump, even though their talent would suggest otherwise. And that's kind of the the struggle, I think, at least, that Cardinals fans are having to see. And this is the struggle, I think, you see with every 8-8 eight and eight team is you look at the context that Cliff has served in, and you can look at a lot of the positives in terms of how, you know, the easiest example is the offense is turned around. We had Kyler earlier this year as, you know, people were talking about him as potential MVP candidate. They were keeping up with some of the top scoring offenses in the league, putting up 30 points a game. And so then you look at, all right, here's where the Cardinals came from. You see how they still have to build. But then when you look at how the team collapsed down the stretch and how the defense was essentially the the ones that were carrying the offense and keeping them in the games that they were in at the end of the season, there ended up being questions that a lot of people had about, all right, how much of this was, you know, a spike or a coast of playing bad teams? How much of this was you know, inability to adjust, how much of it was, you know, specifically built around the fact that you've got a young first-time NFL head coach and a 23-year-old quarterback who are having to, you know, learn and adjust on the fly and that they're having to save the teams. I think that there's uh, pros and cons to the Cardinals approach, but the biggest con, like we've said throughout all of it, is that once the Cardinals started out the way they did and the expectations changed, Arizona needed to adapt to those expectations and like we've talked about with this organization and franchise in the past when they've had expectations that have gone and been raised for them 
they haven't really lived up to a lot of those expectations. Walter, why don't you talk a little bit about just at least some of the things you've seen for the Cardinals, maybe some of the context we've talked about. What is it going to take for Arizona to get over the hump? Is it a variety of things such as, you know, are we overreacting too much and need to be able to give, you know, this team that was essentially bare bones for the most part following the 2018 season, you know, continue with the slow progress and improvement expect change or how much of this is you know pinpointing one or two key issues that is holding this team back from becoming a potential uh, or even just saying become a perennial playoff team well uh, johnny was saying about late in the season playing in your own division by then they've played you once and it's not by coincidence that the Cardinals got swept in the NFC West after going 2-0. and um, And that was so disappointing. But it also points, again, it goes back to how you're preparing the team. I got the overwhelming impression because it just seemed like there wasn't a lot of variation from week to week. And I never got the sense that they were specifically game planning for the opponent, particularly when, you know, I think you guys did the same. I was watching every Rams game. I knew what it took, you know, as a fan and a former coach, I knew what it took to try to take away their bread and butter plays. And when I saw Jared Goff wide open on a bootleg on the first play, throw down to Higby on a 20 yard gain and smile afterwards, I knew right then the Cardinals hadn't done jack to prepare for the Rams. And I was even begging back during the bye week that you could spend a day on the Rams back then. Because in my mind, we couldn't get to the playoffs if we couldn't beat the Rams once. And as it turns out, that turned out to be true. Um, We had to try to break the Arians curse, the Rams curse. and this year and do it once um, for hopefully at home, but then they laid such an egg at home. It was awful. Um, and then on the road, you know, Kyler got hurt. Still can't understand how he can come back after two hours, how, why it took two hours for him to get back on the field where it was clear. He could still throw from the pocket. Um, that, that's mind boggling to me. Um, still can't believe some of the decision-making that game which was a winnable game. Still can't believe that John Wolford was running extended drives left and right. Um, again, Vance Joseph has not shown. He has not shown. I'm sorry to say this. He has not shown a command in understanding how to take away the Rams bread and butter plays. And if not only Jared Goff rip him every time they played, John Wolford has done it. The score was misleading. You know, they, they missed on the goal line there. And, they, you know, there were other other factors um, that prevented them from scoring more. But those time-consuming, just gut-wrenching drives where, where um, Wolford was extending plays, getting first downs with his legs, um, converting first downs on throws, patented throws over the middle where the Cardinals defensive linemen all year didn't get their hands up enough. It was just really excruciating to watch. And this whole thing with backup quarterbacks just having their way with the Vance Joseph defense 
is really, really um, a bad omen to me. Um, I don't get it, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't see why it's happening. But I will say this: so it goes back to preparation. I think I, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to be bold and say it. I think our coaching staff is lazy. I don't think they watch enough tape. If they're watching tape, Cliff's watching tape of plays to kind of integrate into his offense. I don't think they're watching enough tape of the opponents. I don't see game plans tailored to on offense. I don't see them attacking where the other teams are weak. I see them doing their same things over their, It's the same shtick. We're going to do our own thing and try to do it better every week. Well, by then everybody has it on tape and second half of the season, everybody has it on tape. And those teams are planning specifically against you. Right. So, and then on the flip side, on the defensive side, I didn't get that sense either, particularly playing the Rams. When you're going to let them bootleg around and run with their legs and beat you with their legs all day. And then they're patting off tackle play. You're not even defending that. I mean, this is just, just mind boggling to me when it's on tape from other teams who specifically planned against them. They took it away. Why can't the Cardinals? We had the personnel to do it, but you know, I don't want to watch another Cardinals defense where the middle linebackers are playing seven yards deep. They don't come up and make tackles. That was very disturbing to me. You have an elite athlete like Isaiah Simmons sitting on the bench, wasting his time. Tanner Vallejo comes in in the last game and makes 12 tackles, leads the team and did carries carries over what he showed in the Seahawks game. Why he wasn't played at all during that interim between the Seahawks game where he helped make the difference and to the last game of the season where he was the leading tackler is absolutely mind boggling to me. So I think they have personnel issues, you know, it goes back to the guard X thing too. Cliff Kingsbury saying, be candidly saying nobody can block him in practice. Well, but we didn't think it would carry over into the games. I mean, WTF. If guy can't get blocked in practice, Try him in the game. And then he's the best edge rusher we have. So when Golden shows up, forget it. You're not even running, rushing from the edge anymore. We're going to put you inside and rush you from inside. Which, again, why? Why do that? Rush Golden from the inside. I mean, he was so good from the edge, the Jets had to double team him. I mean, nobody rushed that edge other than Reddick, who had a great season doing it from his end. But the combination of them coming on both edges seems so made to order, yet the defense doesn't do it. It's just mind-boggling to me and frustrating because I don't think they understand their personnel, and I don't think they're making weekly adjustments to game plans specifically tailored to take away what the other team does best. And if you don't do that in the NFL with the coaches who do that to you, like Belichick did, them in New England in a game that that the Cardinals really could have won and probably should have won, you know, you're not going to win those close games or the or the preponderance of them, right? So I think next year they better hopefully this offseason they're studying tape of our opponents, particularly in the NFC West, to get a handle on what their offenses are and how to take away their bread and butter plays. And then on the flip side, on the on the offense to find out where are these teams weak. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't 
play every team running into a 20-yard box and throwing bubble screens. It's just not going to work. So there has to be some sort of an identity of what teams we can beat deep and what teams we can beat intermediately and what how did it take away? Here's one last thing. And, you know, is the big shift strategy-wise occurred in, in defending Kyler occurred in the first Seahawks game. You know, they have the linebackers to zone Kyler, and they did it pretty effectively, although he beat him once for a nice TD. He made a juke move and, and dove for the, um, you know, extended the ball and got over the plane. That was awesome, okay? But from that moment on, once they put that on tape, what did the Dolphins do in the next game? Same thing. Did it work? It worked. What did the Cal- what did what did uh, Seattle do in the next time they played him? Kyler even got hurt in that game trying to beat it. Okay. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. I never saw an answer to that. And the answer to me is very simple. You, you if they're going to play the linebackers up and zone you, you got to throw into the intermediates and into the gray areas and throw deep, right? We didn't see it. And that is, is again, a sort of a head scratcher to me is, you know, these are chess games. If they make those kind of moves, you have to have a counter. And that's what we need to see from Cliff Kingsbury in the future, counter moves and, and sort of the forethought that goes into beating defenses when they take away your bread and butter. And now what what are you going to do when they do that? Arizona is a team that isn't going to be good in the intermediate due to the schematic reasons. And how much of it is Arizona struggling in part because when you look at Kyler being 5'10", his release point, a lot of people just wondered if what was figured out more with Kyler that we saw was how defenses changed where they realized a combination of personnel and scheme and everything where they went, hey, you look at the likes of Justin Pugh, Mason Cole, you look at um, even the rotation between J.R. Sweezy and Justin Murray. Hey, if we're rushing these guys and we recognize that they're more run blockers than pass protectors, why not just be able to go ahead, rush up the middle, put those hands up, force Kyler to have to adapt, and then thus you're taking away the intermediate part of the field. I think to a lot of those mesh concepts that the Cardinals would run would be pretty short throws. They wouldn't be anything more than like five yards or so. And then the intermediate spot, like you said, I think that was one of the biggest adjustments. And what was curious to me was that was an adjustment I think I saw throughout the NFL with some of the similarities with other cliff quarterbacks or other shorter quarterbacks even. The Kansas City Chiefs, I go into a breakdown with them, but essentially their intermediate offense is Travis Kelsey and not really anyone else. <laughs> the reason why the Chiefs have still been able to excel is in part because of either adjustments on play calling that they're able to make to kind of get yards after the catch. But you look at the game against the uh, the playoff game of the Bills this weekend. When the quarterback came in, it was basically they ran – the same offense they did previously, though they still went to Tyreek Hill, who was able to just get open and separate, being able to beat pretty much anyone because of his speed, and go to Kelsey, who's able to outrun pretty much any linebacker or safety you throw at him. That's part of the thing I think you look at is some of it I think is still a talent and personnel issue with the Cardinals. I think if you're going to be looking at teams who have the likes of DeAndre Hopkins and you say he's your best deep threat with the likes of even Christian Kirk and Andy Isabella being ineffective, 
Then you're looking at Dan Arnold, who is a solid piece, but obviously he's not an elite tight end that I would call. He's shown effectiveness in the red zone, shown effectiveness on some of those seam routes. I think that there's areas where the Cardinals still need to be able to build. But like you said, with that identity, you almost need to kind of have to say, all right, what are other areas we can adjust to get around that? Because like you said, teams are able to throw that at Arizona. Arizona was not really able to adjust. And the season kind of ended up coming to an unfortunate end in part because you're looking at a Cardinals team that once teams recognized, I think, the fact that Arizona and what their run game was didn't have as much variation Stop the runs, third and long. Kyler Murray gets sacked, not on running around or scrambling, but inside of the pocket. Comes off, gets hurt, eventually comes back in. I think that there's going to be a lot of things that you have to look at for the Cardinals and say, all right, how much of this is simply being able to adapt to what our quarterback strengths are from a personnel standpoint? And what I agree with you, Walter, is that I don't think Arizona's done the best job of adapting to their personnel. We've seen how DeAndre Hopkins wasn't used as much as a deep threat. And I think another thing that I saw from Rams beat writers even uh, talked about where I was just say Jaguars beat writers said, Hey, like when Jalen Ramsey played against the Texans, they would a lot of times motion DeAndre Hopkins into the slot. Jalen Ramsey followed him. Oh, you know, it's man coverage. If Jalen stayed outside, not only would you have a mismatch, you also would know that they may be just playing a zone coverage. That then suddenly turns everything around for the quarterback who's able to utilize, uh, and that was just some of the pre-step motion that we didn't see Cliff use. And so I think that's the big question heading into year three is how much of this is the Cardinals and the ability that we see from their coaching staff to adjust knowing, hey, they're they're going to be adding additional talent to this roster and how much of it is simply a lack of ability to adjust or that you've gotten to a certain point and you're going to have to look at, you know, a potential different coaching staff in the future. Like, like you said, Walter, we've talked about Tanner Vallejo for a long time. Is some of this aspect, at least in John, I'll pass this to you. How much of this aspect do you think is part of what we saw last year was the Cardinals played Terrell Suggs week in, week out, we see the Cardinals play Hassan Reddick at inside linebacker week in, week out. We see how the Cardinals, even under Steve Wilkes, put Patrick Peterson into a zone corner scheme. How much of this, at least for the most part, might be that the Cardinals front office is trying to justify some of the decisions or even bad decisions that they've made and are playing, you know, more expensive guys like Hicks versus a more athletic guy, uh, in part because, you know, like even Gardeck feeds into that. Gardeck was an inside linebacker for years. How much of this is a personnel issue in which the Cardinals were not able to even see what Cliff can do because Kime and Michael Bidwell and the whole personnel is just misdiagnosing things? What are your thoughts on some of that, John? I think that's the biggest area in which one of the biggest that the Cardinals miss Bruce Arians and his blunt and brute honesty. We knew where every player st- stood at any point, no matter, you know, what their salary was, where they were drafted. I mean, you can ask DJ Humphreys as a rookie. Uh, he didn't see the field until his second year. And so I, I think that Cliff Kingsbury, God love him. His, his pre- press conferences offer very little insight as to what's going on. And, you know, Steve Kime wants to, of course, see his draft picks play. But, I mean, when when it's year two for Byron Murphy and he comes out and plays well against San Francisco week one and then for the rest of the year plays under 70% of the snaps, 
behind, you know, Band-Aid player like Drake or Patrick, who played fine, and then Patrick Peterson, who's on the downside of his career. I mean, Byron Murphy at the 33rd overall pick should be a staple for your secondary. He should be playing as much as he can possibly play. Um, and then to shoehorn in him, shoehorn him into a position like nickel corner, I just, I, I you, you take a player that high, he needs to be playing outside at least given an opportunity. If he, if he showcases he can't do it, then that's another discussion. Um, and then I think back to your original point, Blake, of what happened at inside linebacker this year, I think was it, it, it set them back this year, maybe in terms of the win-loss record, but it definitely set them back for next year because of the fact that you should be going week one of 2021, Isaiah Simmons is calling your defense, and he's not going to because he wasn't given the option to play through rookie mistakes this year for a team that you know said they were rebuilding but acted like they were going to be a postseason team and then you're playing somebody like Devondre Campbell ahead of him who's he's a fine placeholder um he's a starter on a bad team like we've seen Atlanta a year ago and then the Cardinals up and down defense this year but on a great team he's a backup player and Simmons is the eighth overall pick should be having the same kind of impact eventually that we saw from Devin White in Tampa Bay over the weekend I mean, they're not the same kind of player, but you, you get where I'm coming from. And so now you've, you've pushed back Simmons' development where you're probably going to have to go through some mistakes in year two. Hicks, in my opinion, showed clear regression to the point where you can move off of Hicks like you can move off Campbell this offseason. Campbell's a free agent. Hicks can be moved off of easily. But the fact that you were so stubborn and consistently played them over the likes of Simmons and, and to a lesser extent Vallejo, who looked good in the finale – You've dug yourself a deeper hole, and they just they refuse to lean on some of the younger players that they had. You know, Cliff doesn't do it as much offensively. I think it's more of an issue and a disconnect with Vance and the front 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 office. Whereas, like you know, Cliff wanted Isabella, and he gave him ample opportunities. And Isabella, he's just he's not an NFL player at this point. And so you know, he had in- interchangeable pieces, and Edmonds gets carries, and Drake plays a decent amount. You know, outside of, you could argue, Lamont Gilliard supplanting Mason Cole. I mean, we saw, based on the personnel that the Cardinals have offensively, that was probably the best version top to bottom. You know, the offensive line, it was what it was. He he ended up benching J.R. Sweezy at some point. So, you know, he got Justin Murray in there before, you know, Isaiah Simmons was ever named a starter defensively. And I know that's apples and oranges, but I think it's a comparison worth making. So I think... Again, you're, you're going to keep Vance Joseph around another year, into year three, and you want to preach consistency. But I also think that it's just, you know, we're, we're at kind of man overboard. We're, we're in a position now where you have to produce next year. And that's why I keep going back to this term that I'm using to signify this offseason. I'm going to, I keep calling it empty calorie offseason, where it's just like, you're just going to be, I think they're going to gorge themselves are in short-term additions to put together the best 53-man roster for one year to try to get this team over the hump and, and get to double-digit wins. And I think that that's going to be it's, – it's not going to be a slow development building process because if they were going to do that, they would have played Isaiah Simmons 16 games last year. He should have been starting all 16 games. Same with, same with Byron Murphy. And in, I'm, I'm a little bit fearful that we're going to see a lot of one-year free agent signings that have no future with the Cardinals, but because they might be better than week one. That's why I I keep telling people, don't get married to the idea that the Cardinals are going to take a corner at 16 and that player is going to start 16 games for them. If, if, If we know anything about this regime, Vance and Steve, 
that there's a good chance that that first round pick doesn't play at all unless that position is a running back or maybe a wideout. I mean, defensive line rotational player that 16th overall pick's not going to play for you next year. So what are you going to do in turn to get the most out of that pick and out of your free agent signings is you're going to look for guys that you can say right now, tomorrow, you're my starter at, you know, left cornerback, right cornerback, left inside linebacker. You're replacing D'Angelo Angelo Blackson. You're starting up front for me. So it's a I'm a little bit concerned that there could be some some moves now over the next three months or so that could jeopardize the long term outlook of this team. Because, again, if you just look, if you take a step back and say, okay, this team went from three wins to five, excuse me, two two or three wins to five wins to eight wins, and you could say to yourself, not watching the game or how they collapsed the end of the season, they're building something. But uh, what are they actually building? Cliff Kingsbury, has he elevated anybody offensively outside of maybe Kyler Murray? I, w- I would argue no. I would say that the best offensive coach right now that they have is Sean Kugler, what he's done with the offensive line. And then defensively, we can ride on Vance and we can get upset about the lack of attention to detail and allowing young players to ride the bench. But then he turns around and, you know, he's starting Zach Allen when Zach Allen's healthy and he got 12 and a half sacks from Hassan Reddick and Buda Baker's played his best football since Vance has arrived. So you kind of have to take the good with the bad, but I am definitely fearful of, of some reactionary short-term gains for for 2021 from this organization to ensure that if you're Steve Kime, you get an extension at the end of the next season instead of your your pink slip, your walking papers. Uh, John, I think that's good, and especially with when it comes down to the not just at the personnel, but some of the long term outlets. Uh, Walter, let's let's talk about what is it from this off season that we're looking at with Arizona because I think a lot of Cardinals fans are looking at a lot of the other moves being made around the NFC West and seeing. Other guys who are showing success and getting promoted, whereas in Arizona, the question at least is how much of this is Arizona going into season three? And this is a all right, we're waiting and seeing at least what's going to be kind of the the outlook from this whole coaching staff. The only moves the Cardinals have really made that we've seen over the last two years are we saw Tom Clements, who's kind of the de facto passing game coordinator, retired. And then David Rye was not retained by the team. They're likely to replace him with Sean Jefferson is what the report is um, from CBS. He's the father, actually, of Van Jefferson, uh, Rams wide receiver. It's kind of bounced around. His most notable uh, plays that he's worked with was from 2007 on. He was a coach to help with Calvin Johnson when Johnson came in. And obviously, you know, uh, Johnson was a guy who wasn't like he came out of nowhere. He was probably the number one wide receiver in the NFL during his his career moved over to the Titans with the likes of KJ Wright. Uh, I think you can talk about at least um, maybe like some of the failed products like, uh, you know, Hunter Washington eventually ended up with the Jets and has been with Adam Gase following around for the last few years. You look at, you know, maybe guys like Anunwa, Brandon Marshall, there's not really been a lot home to speak of as far as for each of those. Now, granted, there's also times where you look at some coaches who end up in different situations and suddenly they become a hot commodity in terms of fit. Easiest one you can think of is how Todd Bowles went from uh, Eagles interim DC uh, and essentially Eagles, <laughs> I think it was a head coach or something like that for the last stretch of their season, follows with Bruce Arians and now he's potentially getting a second round of head coaching interviews. So there's a huge change that has taken place where it's sometimes harder to judge just some of those hires. But 
why does it feel like that the Cardinals, are, for some reason, despite the improvement that we've seen, we're still wondering if this team, at least if they go out and don't see success in their third season, is going to see a kind of giant turnaround. John and I have talked and wondered if the organization never really did rebuild after that 2017 season that saw Bruce Arians walk away and retire rather than stay with the team. And they've really kind of stuck it out with this same talent group and same organization as far as with their draft picks, contract extensions, since maybe even as far as the Rod Graves era, if you want to look at how there was not that much restructuring done behind Kime. What is kind of the perspective you have onto what's going on with Arizona compared to the rest of the division? Well, we clearly have the weakest coaching staff of the four teams. Um, although the Rams and 49ers just got hit. Um, but, man, Sean McVay found a, a gem in Brandon Staley. Oh, my God. I mean, I thought they were insane to let Wade Phillips go. And they really struggled at times on defense last year. This year, they were lights out. Um, and Staley was amazing. I think it's incredible that in five years in the NFL, he's now a head coach. But with that group in, in uh, L.A. with the Chargers, that defense is going to be a force to be reckoned with. Um, and I'm really happy he's out of the division because uh, the young man can coach. And, you know, he really, you know, kind of had – he had James Betcher experience in the NFL when he got the D.C. job um, with the Rams. He had, like, three years assistant – outside linebackers coach under Vic Fangio. And, but the difference between he and um, Betcher was that um, he, you know, that Staley had experience calling defenses in college, albeit at some smaller programs like John Carroll. He was at James Madison for one year. That was, you know, at the end um, in Hutchison, you know, community college in Kansas, which is a pretty good program. That's where he started out. Um, but, you know, I I don't have a lot of confidence, unfortunately, that um, Vance Joseph is the kind of defensive quarter going to match wits with the brilliant play calling um, that we're going to see in this. And I've been worried about that from the beginning. I think he did make some improvements this year in terms of dialing up pressures, particularly once Chandler went down. I Where I, where I think... He's a victim. Joseph is a victim of his own philosophies is how he leans heavily on veterans who aren't showing up for him. Um, I don't, you know, he, he started Suggs all those games and we could tell after week three Suggs had thrown in the towel. I mean, I'll never forget that Bucks game where we had a lead and he wouldn't even rush from the edge. He just stood in cement like gassed or whatever, or just not interested. I mean, we had a chance to win that game. He didn't even put, I mean, what he put on tape with the Cardinals last year is an utmost embarrassment for any football player. And it was clear later what his motives were coming to Arizona. That was just a debacle from the beginning. But, and, and there, here's another guy who missed practices all week. Figured he could just show up in the games, which that has got to stop. Okay, this and even I cannot still believe my ears 
Larry Fitzgerald making fun of it this year. I mean, I think Fitz is done because, you know, I, I would never in a million years would believe that he would get on and make fun of practice like and invoke Allen Iverson. And we're all kidding DeAndre, uh, you know. We're talking about practice, man. We're talking about practice. Practice is how you win in the NFL. Practice is how you prepare. And Larry Fitzgerald is, and Jerry Rice are two of the greatest all. That's why they were so successful all those years. They treated practice like it was a game. I mean, we've seen Larry playing out for passes in practice. I mean, yeah, we're talking about practice. Larry was going full tilt all the time. But even he's now, you know, sort of converted into this, like, yeah, practice. You know, we're talking about practice, man. You know, yeah, it's obvious because as the season wore on, other teams, the NFC East, good thing we weren't playing them at the end. And good thing we squeezed by the Eagles. Which, by the way, I, I mean, that was the other thing that stuck in my craw. Was I'm listening on the radio to Steve Kine prior to the Eagles game. Here we are on the cusp of the, making the playoffs, and they're coming to our building, and they finally won a game with Jalen Hurts for the first time in months. And Steve Kine's saying, yeah, we got to match their intensity. I'm going, What? We got to match their intensity, the Eagles' intensity. I mean, are you kidding me? And this is where we are as an organization. We're so passive aggressive. I mean, it's it's just like, you know. And then on the flip side, the way we just kiss butt on these veterans, you know, and give them everything they want. They rule the roost. They, you know, they can play lousy, and you just trot them back out there. There's no accountability, none. I mean, what we saw from the cornerbacks this year and the efforts, the lack of effort in in tackling, it's no wonder every team, you know, does everything they can to break contain, which is easy to do, except if you're running Reddick's direction, which has got to be stopped. And then up the sidelines, we're like the weakest team in the NFL. If, If Buddha doesn't make the tackle, they're gone. I mean, for chunk yards and, you know, I mean, and the efforts to get there. I mean, we're watching playoff football, and we see these cornerbacks coming up and making plays. You know, um, how about the play Williams made intercept on the Rams, intercepting a, a bubble screen? You know, these guys come up and ball. They tackle. They come up and make plays. They try to get to you before you can get your legs moving. That's the whole thing about defense. But this is where our coaching staff, they don't get it. They don't hold these players accountable. They keep running out the same players when they've stunk the beds. And then the Arizona media is totally blind to it. Our media articles where guys like that are saying, Jordan Hicks had a great year. You know, he's a great leader. And I'm like, what are you watching? I mean, please. I mean, every team picked on him in coverage. I mean, Brett Coleman did a piece on it on the Cardinals defense last summer. It was a brilliant piece. We broke everything down to show show where Isaiah Simmons fit. It's too bad Vance Joseph didn't didn't see that video because Brett Coleman had it all broken down perfectly. And he came out of watching the Cardinals tapes in 2019 and saying, like, the biggest liability on the defense right now is Jordan Hicks. 
I mean, how, if he can see that, why can't the Cardinals coaches or the GM? I, I just don't understand that. So we've got personnel issues. We've got practice issues. We've got accountability issues. There's no credibility. And the way they treat these veterans, it's, it's, it's almost like it's, the analogy I would make to that is it's like having a girlfriend who's hot. You know she's cheating on you, but you still are thrilled that she's got you in the picture. So you let her do whatever she wants. And, and you know, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. These double standards, the kissing butt on veterans, I mean, the holding on to them too long, too. There is such a thing. I mean, Patrick Peterson, they should have traded him two years ago when they had the chance. They could have gotten a first-round pick, right, Johnny? Wasn't it a first-round pick? from, from Philadelphia would have given them a first-round pick in, in 2018 and a player that ended up being uh, Nelson Aguilar, who's, who's it turned out to be to be decent. So, yeah, they all... And and owner, it probably was a Michael Bidwell decision not to not to do it. Well, see, there's the thing with Bidwell too. He gets all lovey-dovey attached to these veterans and gives them their own way. And unfortunately, I mean, Larry is the anomaly. Larry, up until you know, I mean, even this year, he tried like like crazy um, in a subordinate role, which he wasn't used to. But and he got COVID and it just was a tough year for Larry all the way around. But up until this point, I mean, Larry was the anomaly. You know, you knew you were going to get a hundred percent effort from him no matter what. And he's tough as nails. He doesn't back down from anyone. But the other guys back down from a lot of people. They're not. They're not ballers. And and unfortunately, they have their way in there. I mean, I've never seen a player more in denial than Patrick Peterson. I mean, he's still saying that he's got five years left of high-level play. He's even going back and touting his own brand by saying he was an elite return man, which makes me guffaw because he returned with his heart for one year, and after that he, he was quit, total quit. I mean, total, I'm not doing this. And ever since, every return man we have does the same thing. Catches the ball and runs straight out of bounds or backwards. I mean, what's up with that? I mean, I'm watching these other teams. You've got guys, little mini guys who are, you know, advancing the ball and taking cuts and doing, the, doing it the way you're supposed to. We haven't had a return man with, who, who runs with heart in ages, right? Why, why is that? But it's, it's a systematic thing. Because in the Cardinals, you can get away with that, and they still run you out there. So this is where, and, and here's my, my final point, is that I don't even know why Cliff Kingsbury is a head coach anymore. I don't even know why they hired him. I mean, this really isn't his offense. This is Sean Kugler's, mixed in with some Steve Hyden, mixed in with some Jerry Sullivan, mixed in with a couple air raid concepts that Tillery got pushed to the side. I mean, I think he's what he's now is he's, you know, the quarterback coach for Kyler. And that's the other thing. Let me guys, let me ask you guys this. I see other teams. I see Tom Brady on the sideline with tablets. I see him conversing with other quarterbacks and coaches. Why is Kyler sitting over by himself 
I mean, where was Tom Clements? The guy was a ghost. I mean, I already knew he existed. And that's why all these, you know, like Bickley and all these guys are saying, we should hire an experienced offensive coordinator. He was an experienced offensive coordinator who worked with Favre and, and, and Rogers in Green Bay. Where was he? Why, why is no one talking to Kyler? And if anyone, it's like, it's like Spencer Whipple, who's, you know, whispering something here or there to him in a baseball cap. I mean, I, I don't get it. Can you guys answer to that? What, why isn't Kyler being coached on the sidelines? I think that's a good question. Some of that, I think, is tough to know how much it is or isn't happening. Is it a case where Kyler's the one who's learning the system, talking? Is it that he's the one who's kind of, you know, the de facto uh, in charge person? Like someone even mentioned, we wondered what exactly is kind of the changes that have been seen within the organization. A good thing, an example that I brought up earlier was we go and see the quarterback sneak from 2019. Kyler was used. We see Pat Mahomes go down due to injury from it. Did that scare Cliff a bit in terms of, oh, man, I don't want to run this play? Or was that an area where Kyler doesn't want to go in and be able to pick up some of those first downs? Some of that maybe it's being under center. How much of it is trying to navigate and figure some of that out from the staff? One of the other things I think that was notable was we see Chris Streveler pick up a few first downs, seeing that type of package used earlier. And I told you guys to beginning of the season, I was totally in favor of that. Take some of those big hits off of your QB1 if that's going to be the case. We Same. see that happen with the Colts, with Jacoby Brissett. Yeah. Is that, that Kyler just like, hey, man, I don't want to be off the field for these type of plays. You're like, okay, you're having to then have to play to him. That's something I think that I'm not completely sure of, and it's hard to know when you're on the outside, but – the biggest thing that I think that I can echo through a lot of that ultimately is, and this is where I think a lot of it comes back to, when you're talking about accountability throughout a lot of your organization, and John and I have been over this too, it's hard to be able to have a lot of that accountability and transparency, I think, ultimately, because you're not really in a position where you're Arizona and have guys who, you know, either been there or done it before to be able to tell, here's what we're going to do as far as players, here's the adjustments we know we need to make. And I think what that ultimately stems and roots from is if you're going to be accountable as an organization, what the Cardinals essentially did was, you know, there's a, a Simpsons meme, I think, or something with their you know, the principal or something that goes like, am I the one who's like outdated? No, no, it's, it's the children who are wrong for that. <laughs> I think that when you look back at the Cardinals, and we've talked about this from the history of that, that you take that 2017 season for that when coaches essentially turned down interviews with Arizona who didn't have any quarterbacks under contract because they, you know, decided to really not build around their future. You look at all of that and it's like, hey, like, was Bidwell and Kine, were we the reason why the Cardinals were went from being, you know, a team that was finishing 8-8 eight and eight and, you know, had at least uh, no quarterback but was at least a competitive team? No, we made the wrong hire in Steve Wilkes. You look then at that following draft season and it's, hey, were, were we, did we mess up the Josh Rosen evaluation considering that Lamar Jackson went, you know, we wasn't even really on our board and the Cardinals, you know, looking at how they had set up, you know, we, we talked about this earlier. They probably would have taken Josh Allen if they could have traded up for him. And that may have been a solid, solid pick, but did, did they have the guys who could develop him with Mike McCoy? No, no. Okay. It's Rosen. Who's wrong for that. What I think a lot of it stems to is that ultimately all this has kind of been a, a way where Steve Kyman to a lesser extent, Michael Bidwell have not really been able to have the level of accountability 
that we think has been needed within the Cardinals organization. And part of that's because Kime never paid the penalty for all of that terrible offseason that he had. There was never accountability that said, all right, this isn't working. We're going to have to clean house. And in that sense, you talked then about hiring Cliff. Well, why did they hire Cliff? Part of it is you weren't going to be able to go out and pay a Matt Rule, you know, $10 million a year to come in and be a program builder under Steve Kime. You were looking at a guy like Cliff who really was going to take an NFL job because there wasn't really that much out there that was going to be that. He, he went from Texas Tech head coach to UFC offensive coordinator. And the same setup and structure, interestingly enough, was really set up with the Jets organization. They had kept the same GM in their spot. And what happened when Adam Gase took over? Well, he immediately did everything he could to make sure their GM got let go and fired. And it turned into him being let go over the years as they brought in someone like Joe Douglas, who essentially, for all better terms and purposes, was able to go out and traded away a bunch of players who were there, brought in a bunch of different aspects, and we'll see how that one's turned out. But really, I think it's really hard then to find, like you said, that measure of accountability. Because, and John and I have even talked about this, you can talk more about how they've dealt with stars too. When you're not willing to be able to hold accountable the people at the top level, whether it's through you know changes or restructuring or however that's going to work out, it's going to be really hard to then push that down to players. You know, if you've got a guy who's able to be, uh, you know, make plays for that one where you're having to constantly put in different guys. A good example even is the lack of wide receiver development, the lack of fit. You and I have talked about it, Walter, as far as taking Andy Isabella as a second round guy to be the deep threat. When we looked at the comparisons and it took four or five years for some of those guys to excel, taking, you know, a likes of Akeem Butler, uh, even blowing up and talking about how Christian Kirk is going to be a thousand yard guy every single year. A lot of these different talks, he's a, you know, he might be your future number one after Fitzgerald and seeing that then turn into where the team fired and let go of David Rye. Uh, even another one, as far as where they were like, I think Mike Jarecki even sent out said, Oh yeah, the Cardinals, like they, uh, their wide receiver coach, Jerry Sullivan thought that the best wide receiver in that class was Justin Jefferson. And then you're like, okay, so like, did you, then feel like that you needed to get a guy who is a future stud? Like, what happened then with the Isaiah Simmons pick in the beginning to have to go through all of these different steps? Like, it's almost kind of like a tout your horn when you're right, but not really wanting to be held accountable for when you're wrong. John, I think a lot of this stems from the fact that the Cardinals, and the biggest thing as far as with how they've built their team, they built their whole team around the likes of Chandler Jones, David Johnson, even Patrick Peterson, and Larry Fitzgerald, and we've seen kind of the primes of their careers have now gone to the point where we don't even know if any of those four players will be on the Cardinals roster after this past year with Chandler Jones, and we don't even know what's going to go on with the likes of Peterson and Fitzgerald. That was essentially the team that Steve Kime had built around those star players, and they wanted those star players to be there because, as we've talked about before, when you're a bit of a loser franchise, you sometimes get accustomed to, hey, you know, we didn't win this year, but come on down and, you know, watch Chandler get sacks, watch Fitz make catches. I think that there's a whole renovation that they have to look at for their staff and structure. And if they don't do that this offseason, I think that's part of why a lot of people are wondering if this is the last year of the Cliff Kime Vance regime or if they'll be able to look in the mirror, recognize they got to make changes and then go through that overhaul. Yeah, they just it's a franchise that has always had low self-esteem outside of when Kurt Warner was under center and with Bruce Arians was hitting his, his high as a head coach when he and Palmer were at their height of their powers. Outside of that, historically, 
through my entire life, my father's life. It's a franchise that had to share a stadium with the baseball Cardinals, moved to Arizona, shared a stadium at ASU, finally got their own stadium. Issues are surrounding ownership. I mean, they just, they have no tangible quality history. They have the longest professional championship drought in all of pro sports. And so, yeah, of course, they, they have idolized, uh, rightfully so, a 38-year-old receiver now who a lot of teams probably would have moved off of and the Cardinals didn't, partially because they didn't have anybody better. This is now really the first offseason. I, I think I've seen the majority of Cardinal fans say it's time to move on or if he wants to come back for the vet minimum, that being Fitzgerald. You know, they've got Hopkins now. They need to get younger and more athletic. And, you know, I also think Steve Keim is a victim of him, himself in the sense that he he does not do a great job evaluating his own talent. Um, I think he does a really nice job in the, in the trade market. He's a subpar drafter. His free agent signings are hit or miss. But, I mean, he drafted Tyron Matthew, who could be a Hall of Famer one day, and should have been allowed to be with this franchise. And the fact that, you know, listen, I know they released him because he wasn't playing up to his capabilities. They had contract issues. To watch him go on and succeed like this with Kansas City, to not have any inklings of, of injury concerns there, I don't know. It just it rubs you the wrong way as a fan that he should be playing in Arizona. Calais Campbell should have been allowed to finish his career just because they didn't have anybody else better, and they banked on Robert Kimdichie. Um, so I'm sure there's a concern from Kime that if I let Patrick Peterson go, it's going to be another one of these situations, even though you can make an argument. You know, Calais was their best defensive lineman far and away before they let him walk, and it's just been a gaping hole they haven't been able to to fill. But to a lesser extent, you know, what's going on with John Brown? Didn't get his sickle cell treatment that he that he needed or the, the attention that he needed in Arizona. And for whatever reason, he's been completely fine up in Buffalo and has, you know, a 1,000-yard season under his belt. It's a big part of what they do. Every, every time I turn on the TV, he's catching touchdowns when he's active. Um, it's just it's disappointing. Um, but I, I think to your point, Blake, they also need to have a transition period where they're ushering in a new group of core players. And I think that they have a nice base to build around. They just don't have enough yet. Mm-hmm. You know, Buda yeah. Baker, of, of course, is in that category. You know, they I would imagine the, the notion is for Isaiah Simmons to be part of that core. Is Hassan Reddick part of that group? You know, they've got nobody of note on the defensive line. Where does Byron Murphy fit into it? And then on the offensive side, it really just is right now a three-man show. It's Kyler Murray, it's DeAndre Hopkins, and it's and it's DJ Humphreys. I think there are um, there are areas of of internal personnel that could rise to that group. I think Josh Jones could be a part of that group eventually. Who knows about Dan Arnold? Uh, you know, Chase Edmonds is a phenomenal. A little back, but I don't think he's a twenty to thirty touches per game kind of player. So yeah. they have a good group of about five to six players, but then that middle meat part of the roster, the what Arians was able to maximize during his time. You know that team, you know top to bottom in twenty fifteen they had a great roster, but even in the 2013-2014 seasons, they didn't have a bunch of star players, but they just had a lot of really good middle middle of the road players that helped fill out a roster that won double-digit games both those years. The Cardinals have too many liabilities right now up front on their defensive line, at corner, you know, opposite Simmons at inside linebacker. Their interior offensive line is below average right now. They're paying too much money to the wrong kind of players and Peterson and Justin Pugh. And then they put you in a position, like you guys mentioned, where it's like, 
we are overpaying them. It's evident we're overpaying them. We don't have a better player to supplant them. If we let them go, can we get an upgrade? And I think that that's it's like a fear-based mantra of like you could let go of Justin Pugh and save a decent amount of money this offseason. You could move off of him. Then you'd be going into next year with Josh Jones, who's unproven at right tackle, Justin Murray, who he's a nice developmental player, but we need to see him over 16 games at right guard, Mason Pugh, who was a disaster this year, and then you'd replace Justin Pugh with somebody who'd be brand new to the team and have to learn from scratch, and there'd be a an ushering in period. They just they have not had a good... Woody, I mean, it, it's encapsulated by the situation with Larry. They have not had a good development plan on so many of these key spots, defensive line, corner, receiver, interior offensive line, that now it's just like every offseason, it's like the Band-Aid approach. Like Devondre Campbell, slap a Band-Aid on it. You know, overpaying somebody like Jordan Phillips, slap a Band-Aid on it. You know, Drake Kirkpatrick before the season because Robert Alford, who, by the way, was a Band-Aid, slap a Band-Aid on it. They're, they're just... And that's that's a product of poor drafting, and we've seen that. When this team was humming with Rod Graves from a personnel standpoint, they had contingencies. We They moved from uh, um, Antonio Smith to Calais Campbell seamlessly, but they, they haven't been able to get into a groove. Now, I will say, you know, Kime's last two drafts have been better. I, I do think this, this 2020 draft class has a chance to be really strong when you incorporate the addition of Hopkins. So if he's able to put together two solid drafts in a row i'm high on that group if he can do it again and then you you talk about hitting on kyler murray in 2019 that's going to give you something to work with but he hasn't been able to show that yet that consistency is not there yeah and john the cardinals have not really even with those last two draft classes they haven't found any stars that they've hit on in either of those two like the example that you gave in terms of with letting tyron matthew walk they actually went out, were aggressive, moved up, and brought in the likes of Buda Baker. And that's probably been the only time that we can look at where the Cardinals went out, saw, hey, Tyron Matthew, he's like not playing up to the level we want that contract to be. There was a lot, I think, that did tie into that with how Bruce Arians manage players and teams. But that's the only example. They tried to do that, I think, at other times. They tried to, you know, bring back in Carlos Dansby for a year, put in Hassan Redick in that inside linebacker role, which, is, as we've talked about, was just kind of a, a failure in scouting. They evaluated Robert Kandichi as being, you know, one of these top guys who just needs a little bit of tough love and we've got the organization that can take care of him passing on the likes of a Chris Jones who had production and was 6-1 instead of 6-5 even John Brown you look at with Bruce Arians and some of the stories that came out afterwards about the Cardinals one of the things that stood out to me was how John Brown was injured the team doctors were going hey like you know only let him run two deep routes any more than that there may be some risk of further injury Bruce Arians goes heck no we got to practice goes out sends him on three deep routes on the third deep route he re-injures himself and going from that that whole 2016 year he just did not seem to be the same I think that there's an element of Bruce that you know, it would get the most out of players, but in some cases would wear a lot of them down to the point where, you know, we even talked about he's almost a guy who you come in short term with your organization, win now, and then there wasn't really any type of future or other plan after all of that. And some of that, I think, is that that future plan then needs to rely on finding young talent, bringing them in, and being able to get that next great player so that you're not able to get caught in these aspects, like a good example of being the New Orleans Saints, paying these stars all this amount of money, and then you don't have a backup plan behind them. So suddenly, you know, you're paying Alvin Kamara a ton of money 
and it prevents you from being able to hold on to some of these guys where you just keep kicking the can down the road and now what do the Saints have for next year like are they gonna really have to trade a whole bunch of draft resources to try to get a rookie are they gonna try to roll with Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston for a year like it's just the Eagles I think were in kind of that same aspect of not really being able to figure out and do a good enough job of internal evaluation, keeping a lot of those stars around. And then when it came time to replenish and replace, they just fell down the into the absolute worst as far as for whatever it was with their drafting. They were not making competent decisions. Essentially, some of that aspect is, you know, you miss and whiff on some of those, but... I think when you're talking about with where it is with Arizona, what the problem has been, John, you, I think, summed it up best in terms of the internal evaluation of Arizona needs work. And that means that the Cardinals, from what we've seen so far, I think the reason why a lot of people are having questions about whether this regime can get that done is because we still see some of the same issues and problems popping up repeatedly, even amidst some of this forward progress they're making, you know, with the young quarterback. Uh, Walter, let's talk a little bit as far as when we're looking at kind of the adjustments that the Cardinals have to make. The only adjustment we've seen so far on the coaching staff is bringing in a new wide receiver coach. We haven't talked anything about, you know, any type of offensive coordinator. We haven't really even seen the full-on air raid. What do you think, at least as far as with Arizona, what are the moves that they need to make this offseason that let's go ahead and assume that, we keep the same staff, and I think it's the right decision to keep this current staff. What do you think are the moves that Arizona should or could make that would prove that they are going into the right direction? Or is this kind of a spot where a lot of Cardinals fans are looking at this as, hey, like we're just kind of waiting to get through to the 2022 season, hope for the best, but just kind of prepare for you know, the, this to kind of be the beginning of the end for this organization and the people who are there. And, you know... That's going to be one of the things that we are assuming another bad season and missing the playoffs would mean that Kyme and Cliff, the team, decides to move on from them. But I'm not sure if anyone can guarantee what that case is going to be. What is it that Arizona has to do with this offseason to kind of get this team in a spot where we've got comfort to know that they're going to be a perennial playoff contender and you'll start to see this team lose coaches and defensive coordinators to head coaching and OC or DC jobs? What does the Cardinals need to turn around? Well, the the best players on the team are young, and they're also the best leaders. Uda Baker, hands down, is the best leader on this team, hands down. Um, I wrote an article about him today. Um, I trust him 100%. He's the only player who really came out and said, you know, some people aren't doing their jobs. Love that. That's That's the truth. And Buddha has integrity. Um, I would, if it were me, I, I, no veterans for big contracts. Um, you want to target again, like four, fifth year, sixth year guys heading into their prime, like a Curtis Samuel. We need a slot receiver. He would be ideal. Plus he can double as a running back. Um, you know, he's, he's the wide receiver version of Chase Edmonds. Um, only faster, and he's coming off a really good season. He's he's a guy I would target. You need, in my opinion, you can pick up two corners. Um, Sidney Jones uh, would it be an automatic fit. Washington U, UW um, 
teammate of Byron Murphy, who, by the way, I'm 100% with Johnny. We got to move Murphy out to the perimeter and start him at right cornerback. Um, City Jones won't be expensive. We could add him. And then one of the really good corners, like William Jackson, um, you know, he'd be a nifty fit. I'd sign, um, uh, you know, any veterans that come in that want to play for the minimum would be like Jonathan Joseph to be a backup slot or even a starting slot. And his veteran leadership, I think, would be a nifty fit for another year to keep him around. Robert Alford's got to go. Um, just too bad for him and the organization just didn't work out. I don't even like him on a, you know, come back at the vet minimum. Um, he's been out of football for two years now. I, I wouldn't count on him for that. The other biggest decisions on defense would be Chandler Jones. I'd like to see them extend him. If he could be realistic and be, be generous with the club. I think he loves it in Arizona. I think he loves the young players. He bonds with them. He loves Kyler. I think he wants to stick around, but we need him to take, uh, you know, take some pressure off of the, the caps because um, we have to re-sign Hassan Reddick. He's the perfect Sam outside linebacker. We cannot let him go. Um, I laugh when people are ranking him like 42nd in free agency. You can't – what he put on tape the second half of this season is going to make him a rich man. Um, eventually, you know, I mean, I think the Cardinals are really going to have to, um, tag, you know, transition tag him at the very least. Um, people are going to offer him some money because he's in that category of coming into his prime. The Cardinals clearly made a mistake by miscasting him. That's not his fault. Now he's on the edge and he's thriving, but he does everything a Sam outside linebacker is supposed to do and does it as a, at a high level. Uh, the question mark. I love what Zach Allen did. He reminded me of his BC days. That's the kind of player he is. I think he's a legit starter where he is. I love this kid, Foto. I'd stick him in at the nose. I tell him right now, you're a starting nose tackle. Get used to it. You're going to get in there. Shard Lawrence didn't flash enough for me. I don't know about him yet, although I know he's a high character. But Jordan Phillips is a real enigma to me. Um, Hopefully he'll come in, in shape this year. Never got the sense he was in playing shape or football shape. Maybe thought the season would be canceled, as I think Chandler and some of the other veterans did. Hicks came in out of shape. Um, we need guys coming back in big-time shape, um, whoever they are next year. Um, Phillips is an enigma. So I think you got to address a spot there, add, add a key little piece. Um, you know, I think Shelby Harris – would make a lot of sense. He knows Vance. I think that would be a nice addition there. And then you could use Phillips in a pass rush. Um, Gardeck, hopefully he come back sooner than later. We're going to need him on the edge. Love to have Marcus Golden back, but, you know, he's 31 now. And I don't know if you insult him with a vet minimum or a little over that, but I, I don't know if we're going to be able to afford him. I would um, let let Hicks go. He doesn't have any trade values and won't be able to trade him. You save money on that. Hmm. I was going to say with Marcus Gilbert, there is some, there is some good news at least with that regard because of how Marcus Gilbert, um, he ended up classifying into being a high risk as far as with, um, uh, everything that happened with the COVID and the protocol. So he was able to take the opt out year. What's interesting with Marcus is that he actually made more money from the opt out than he did from the vet minimum 
because of the fact that he did test into the high risk category. So his contract will essentially toll for Arizona. So he is under contract for essentially that that minimum deal that he signed. It wouldn't shock me if he does come back this year because there's not expected to be any of that type of um, vet minimum or other type of uh, deal that's going to be out there for Arizona for uh, for any NFL team. So it does seem, at least as far as with Marcus being on the books, it does seem like he may end up being your backup right tackle behind the likes of Josh Jones. And you're already having to account for him under the cap because of that under the NFL CBA. So that's one thing, at least, that's interesting is, you know, with how everything worked out, I don't think that you're necessarily needing to then, you know, go and say, how much money are we going to cost for Calvin Beecham to come back for that one? Because Beecham might be able to make more money for another team next year, or you bring him back if you feel like he may be, you know, better as a, a yeah, backup. Well, I, I mean, but it'd be I, a I late was working camp my segment. way over to the offense. So I'll get to that in a second. But, um, finish out the defense i think we're, we're solid at safety we got the thompson brothers of course we got an all pro and buddha i think that um bringing chris banjo back he's not going to cost a lot he's a valuable piece he's good on special teams charles washington is a special team stud you want him back he won't cost a lot then if you switch over to the offense i like justin Pugh. i don't you know his grade gets diminished twice every year for playing aaron Rodgers. there's i mean um aaron donald there is no guard in the NFL who can block Aaron Donald, period. So if you're thinking, you know, I looked up Joe Thune's, um grades versus Donald this year. They were worse than Pew's. Okay, and that's the premier guard, he and Scherf. I like Scherf, but he's going to cost a ton. I think it makes sense to hold on to Pew another year. He and um, DJ have good chemistry on his side. I'd move Cole out of center into guard. I think Corey Lindsay would be the top free agent, uh, even though he's a veteran. Um, he's so good. I mean, I don't know if you watched him this weekend, but I mean, he was a man against the Rams. Um, he was just awesome. Um, and by the way, the Green Bay moved Adams around the way the Cardinals should have done. Um, you know, but um, on that right side, Justin Murray and Cole can battle it out for right guard and then of course josh jones has to start at right tackle i mean you know i mean it's time to move on i mean you drafted him in the third round you don't want to redshirt him in a sophomore year the way did they did with cole i think they really missed the boat with cole i think he would have been a lot better this year had they played him last year it made no sense to me to one year a veteran who really had the same grades i mean he didn't play much better maybe a little better in pass pro, but not, not much. Um, you know, so they, they stifled the development there, but I think still think you can get good play out of Cole. Then, you know, the, the skill players, I'd bring Dan Arnold back. He's, you know, he's, he's on the rise. I don't think right. he'll be that expensive. Max Williams, keep him. I love him. Um, hopefully he's, he's healthy this year. We need him. Um, you know, I think I would draft another tight end, get some, get some somebody younger in there too. But I think we need to get faster. Um, his Samuel would would do that. I'd get a fast running back, someone with elect, electricity. Um, there's some really good ones in this draft. They all we all know. I mean, I love Najee Harris. Um, he's the most complete back I've seen in quite some time. I think he's a game changer. Uh, I wouldn't mind even using a first round pick on him. Um, but, but then at receiver, we need another speed guy. 
We need to find a speed guy either in the draft or in free agency because this, and, you know, I hate to say it, but with Larry and, and, and you know, and Keyshawn and, and Hopkins, they're slow by NFL standards. Um, we got to take tops off the defense. And I'll disagree with Johnny. I don't, I think Annie Isabella is a fine NFL player. Of course, he is my godson. We're joking on, on the line right now, but um, he's not my godson. But if you go back and look at the first three games, he was, he played outstanding. And, you know, the, the, the mistake he made in the Patriots game was unfortunate where he had a first down and ran backwards. Um, and then they wanted to see what Keyshawn could do in this offense. Wide receiver three and four had no chance. Let's just face it, no chance. Okay, in the hierarchy of touches, they they weren't going to get the ball. I mean, you're trying to feed, first of all, Drake got the most touches other than Kylie. Okay, so you're feeding Drake, feeding Drake, feeding Drake. Then Edmonds got the second number of touches. So it was a running back-centric offense which some of the fans don't seem to get. If we're going to continue to do that, we need really good running backs, not fourth-round guys who can come in and might get hurt. We need studs. We need really – if you're going to go running back one, running back two, as two top-touch guys, you need guys who can do that and carry the load. Then number three was Hopkins. Then number four was what? Maybe Kirk? Uh, even Kirk. Yeah, Kirk was the maybe one that was Kirk next was, with all like of that. Said, yeah. The expectation was maybe he could have a thousand yard season. At the beginning of the year, it looked like maybe he could too, but then he, he fell off the map again. I mean, and partly because the distribution of the ball just wasn't, there wasn't, there was one football and it wasn't, you know, they were giving it so much to Drake and Edmonds and Hopkins. What's left over? And so, you know, people are making a big deal out of Isabella, but he had no chance. And if you go back and look at that Lions game and his two TDs, those were awesome. You know, that corner pass to the pylon, it's perfect, perfectly thrown ball. Later in the year, when Isabella was in there, Kyler had terrible timing with him. Isabella's a guy who's going to get open on his breaks. You've got to throw it on the break. You know, the play at the Seahawks game, that he was wide open on the corner route was thrown late and too and too far um otherwise he would have had it um you know they had him had him early so i i'm sticking with isabella and johnson i think they have talent but you got to move them up give them more of a shot we have to get faster and attack downfield more on offense and then the whole kicking game probably is going to need a makeover i mean they say they might stick with gonzalez if that's the case, I just don't, you know, I mean, come on, really? Um, you know, I mean, I don't think you want that hanging over their heads again. Um, and, and then maybe Andy Lee's going to retire. If not, he's certainly good enough to keep around. But, um, you know, I, I'd say get younger and don't bite the bullet on, you know, don't take the bait on like Peterson or veterans who want good salaries going into their third or fourth contracts. 
Yeah, Walter, it's the way the team is constructed, and we, we broke down some of our salary cap last week, if you guys want to listen to that podcast or if you haven't heard it yet. The Cardinals essentially have right now about $25 million in, in cap room, but when you look at how they only have you know, 31, 33 players who are under contract for next season, they're going to have to fill in some of that cap room. So you're only probably looking at about, you know, 13 to 14 million dollars so when you're looking at who some of the guys who could be the cap casualties at least for that one the ones that are pretty easy to see like you said stand out uh you talked obviously about um with the cap casualty you're looking at obviously uh, robert alford you mentioned uh the other ones at least that are there some of them i think are harder to see devon Kennard is one that i think is a cap casualty definitely uh that one makes sense you and i both are in agreement it doesn't make any sense to view justin Pugh as a cap casualty to move on and then have to suddenly fill in that replacement role the only way you would be able to do that is if you're you mentioned this and this is a possibility that i have liked for arizona if you're going to go out and try to pay big money for Corey Lindsley and move him at center, well, suddenly you could say, hey, could we pay Corey Lindsley at center, move on from Justin Pugh, and then kick the likes of um, uh, their current center, Mason Cole, out to guard? That That's a possibility. I think you and I are looking at how much they would have to cost of some of that hit for Pugh. You and I at least are looking at he's got two years left in Arizona. I don't think there's not much guaranteed money left outside of next year. So looking at extending Pew through the 2023 season, that I think is something that we can look at as a realistic possibility for Arizona, be able to have that as a way to free up some of this cap room. Now, again, you're kicking the can down the road, but he's played well enough to the point. He's been a great pass protector. I think that no matter what you're looking at, the thing that I think is something that Arizona needs to figure out is no matter what they do on the offensive line, I've got questions about the protections in that scheme as far as when it comes to the fact that, you know, you and I talked about it in the past. Well, this Cardinals team has struggled to pick up stunts very well. We've talked about how there's other teams and quarterbacks who seems like, hey, they're bringing a blitz. It's picked up and the players delivered. Arizona has not been solid for some of that now. I think a lot plays into it. Some of it is how quick are guys who are not Hopkins separating off the line, how quick of it is knowing where the blitz is coming from. I think some of those things can be tweaked with, you know, you put a little bit more pre-stat motion that'll identify, you know, man or zone. You have the blitzes being designed. I think that there's things that Arizona can do from a coaching standpoint, and the fact that we haven't seen a lot of that makes me wonder, is it that Cliff's offense, the way it's designed, I can see, you know, some of the concepts, how it's able to get open. But the question I have is, is it possible that there are guys who are rushing at Kyler who are, you know, either they're not calling out the protections or are there really the same protections that we're seeing in a lot of those aspects that need to be improved? So that's kind of the biggest thing I'm looking at is, you know, one thing I think that's easy enough to do for Arizona is you go out, you sign that veteran center of Lindsley who was blowing guys off the ball against playoff teams then you're able to have the flexibility of a guy like Cole who can now, oh, hey, perfect, you can move him over to guard one way or the other. You also know you've got your backup center already set. That way you're not having to go out and, you know, pay a Joe Thune or something. You can not even have to look at drafting another guard for that one until day three because, hey, like, and we've gone over some of this too, the sweet spot for guards and interior offensive linemen that's, I think, the biggest emphasis that needs there to be for the Cardinals because of a shorter and athletic quarterback like Kyler. We've kind of seen, if you've got an offensive tackle who's getting blown by with guys, then you're going to have some issues. 
But Kyler, in a lot of ways, has made up for that because of his ability to run. Edge rushers can't get super far upfield because he may just take off between that gap. That really means, and this is what I saw on tape, that when you've got the interior pressure gets to him, that's, I think, the biggest thing that has to be adjusted. And that's one of the hardest things to do in the NFL is uh, interior pressure just disrupts quarterbacks. You have to then look at you know screen passes and look at other ways. And some of the short and the intermediate game, I think, will be boosted tremendously by being able to win games from the pocket, knowing that Kyler can make your offensive line look better than it is because his mobility can, you know, get outside or be able to run. I think at least from that team on the offensive side, I think that you provide enough talent on the offensive side. And like you even said, making sure that he's got enough weapons so that that way, if you still see some of the same hot and cold and offensive struggles, you can then diagnose exactly where your issue is and you'll recognize, okay, we've got plenty enough to get by. We're looking at Cliff. This is not a marriage that really seems like it's working as well. And we need to be able to find uh, the next pro step to be able to take where we're able to look at, you know, taking advantage of putting the quarterback and some of these weapons in the best place possible to succeed. That's, I think, something that we should know by the end of this upcoming year. How much of this was, you know, Cliff Kingsbury as a young coach changing, making adjustments, learning, and the lack of personnel, or if this is going to be simply just a spot where the, the talent is not being used properly, and that means that you're going to have to go through a whole overhaul. I think, and this has just kind of been for my thing, just looking at how it's been, I don't think the Cardinals are going to want to put a huge emphasis on taking a running back at least not as high as 16. John and I have talked about how we could see it potentially being one of those best fit availables if they decided to trade back, but you're looking at kind of the sweet spot for running backs, a lot of the starters. The likes of Jonathan Taylor, we looked at him last year as a guy who athletically was probably worth the first round pick. Same with DeAndre Swift. They both fell to the second round. It would not shock me at all if you have the likes of a Najee, of an ETN, even a Javante Williams. You know, we haven't even talked about the likes of a, a Gainwell coming out of Memphis. Uh, the Memphis running backs have been super impressive. You just take a look at this year, you have what looks like a franchise back in the third round that the Washington football team found, who was able to both catch the ball out of the backfield super well and run it, which is kind of the moo mode of... We've talked about this, Walter. The new NFL is essentially realizing that, hey, like it's all about the matchups and mismatches. If you can get a running back who catches the ball, makes a guy miss, and plays that like uh, like that's one of your point creators, you can find that at wide receivers now too. A guy who can catch the ball, make someone miss, get yards after catch. That's kind of the secret in today's NFL because you can take advantage of those mismatches, get extra yards down, and be able to do it. I think the big question overall is, how much, Walter, do you think of this is the Cardinals needing to make adjustments and how much of this at least is something that you're kind of stuck with what you have? Like the, I think the fear a lot of Cardinals fans have is, yeah, you may go out and sign Sidney Jones. Yeah, you may, you know, move a guy out to the perimeter. Yeah, you maybe pay one bigger free agent to come in, whether that's the likes of Curtis Samuel or Lindsley on offense. Whatever it turns out to, you're probably looking at either a receiver or a corner. Maybe I know we've talked, to, and a lot of fans have wondered about um, if the tight end uh, Kyle Pitts out of Florida would be there. You and I agree he's kind of one of those big slot type of Darren Waller guys, more than a, 
a Kittle or a Kelsey type of blocker receiver combo. What do you think is kind of the thing for this team? How much of this is we're close and there needs to be some tweaks and the coaching can improve with it? And how much of this is the Cardinals are just kind of stuck with where they are and what they should probably do at least is use this next year to evaluate and then, you know, look at that overhaul. What do you think at least is the level of concern between like, you know, uh, I'm about a two or a three, or is this, we're looking at a 10 where the Cardinals have a long, long uh, turnover ahead of them amidst Kyler figuring out who he is before the Cardinals probably have to go and hand him uh, one of these quarterback mega deals. Well, I think that, you know, you made interesting points about picking up blitzes. Jason Cole to sit on the sidelines last year. I mean, that kind of continuity and that comes down to communication and reads um, and reps is, is so critical. You need somebody who knows how to, you know, diagnose and, and anticipate those blitzes coming. And you need, that's why practice is so important because then you need, you know, the coordination between the, the interior three, the two guards. That's why I'd be a little leery of, you know, I mean, Justin Cole gave up one sack this season. I mean, that in itself says to me, that's a guy I want to keep. Because I think, I hope, you know, you and Johnny are on the same page as I am. I'm hoping and praying we're going to throw the ball more next year. I mean, it was 54% only this year. I went back and... Yeah, they were, like you said, a run-first team yeah. outside of Hopkins. The rest of the passing offense, like I said, was brutal and not great. And once I think that teams recognized you could take away the run and Hopkins, I felt like that they didn't have enough, whether it was structure or whether it was a part of it, I think, was the wide receiver talent that they had. Like, we're talking about their second leading receiver on the team was not Christian Kirk. Fitzgerald had the second most amount of receptions. He was just kind of used for this over-the-middle bubble screen. Like, it wasn't really an impactful role on offense that we got to see. So I think that you have to figure out one way or the other, is this a coaching issue with the scheme, or is this a a talent thing, and how much of those go into it? Fitz had the most limited route tree I've ever seen for him. He was button-hooked, you know, a couple dig routes, occasional out passes. And a rare sideline pass, which he was so good at in in Kyler's freshman year, I, I first year, um, you know, we still have visions of him planing out and catching that ball against the Lions in Game One. Um, but they didn't. They only threw him to him, I think, once or twice this year on a corner route, um, as I recall, which is a Fitzgerald staple. But part of the problem is is that you know at this point in Larry's career. He's basically has the speed of a tight end. And, you know, I mean, and he doesn't separate as fast as he, he used to. So, you know, I mean, we need to get the ball out of Kyler's hand faster. And so we need speed guys with some suddenness. Um, you made an interesting point earlier in the podcast about that it passes. You know that Jared Goff has more batted passes than Kyler Murray. It's not about size. It's about timing. And most of the, and this goes back to Mason Cole too, Blake, is that that if you block these things right, 
you take you you let your defender commit to one side and then you ride him out to create passing lanes for your passer. I mean, how many times have you seen from the back angle on TV this wide open passing lane? You're going like, oh my God. I mean, you know, like Tiny Tim could throw those. I mean, but but teams actually, good offensive line coaches, scheme those up. You know, it's it's all about and the other thing is, is will we finally see Kyler next year? Will they finally use him on the run to pass? I mean, it's almost comical that we watch the Rams and watch Jared Goff and John Wolford run around all afternoon. And Kyler Murray is everywhere. You can find Kyler Murray at the back of the pocket on every play. I mean, he's like Carson Palmer, only he's got an escape route if he wants it. I mean, I just don't, I cannot fathom in, in any conceivable way why they are not using taking his full advantage of his athleticism. Yeah, that that really is the question, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, it's just it's just unfathomable as to why Kyler's not being used, you know, to his full full advantage. I mean, everyone sees the height thing and they worry about the bad it passes. Well, one of the ways to ensure against that is to move them around, right? So, I mean, you know, that's a no-brainer. Um, I think he has to play under center more. They ought to run just so that they, they can defend these in practice. They ought to run that, those staple ram plays. Why not? And hide a receiver underneath like they do with Woods and Higby. <laughs> those plays are hard to defend. Might as well get them, you know. Um, you know, every offensive coach is a plagiarist and, a, you know, a borrower of plays. Why not put that package in? I mean, I imagine Sean McVay would be drooling to get his hands on someone like a, a Kyler Murray. And I'll tell you what, in his offense, Murray wouldn't be standing at the back of the pocket every play. <clears throat> but I think um, Kyler, this whole whatever's going on, with him on the sidelines and it's not a good look. It also doesn't speak well to the organization. Um, I don't think that two years in he's earned the right to be able to just sit by himself and, and brood. I think you need a coach there. You need Cliff there. And, you know, I sometimes Cliff sneaks over, but, that's the problem with Cliff being head coach is that he's got other responsibilities, but they need somebody there. And I'm still waiting for them to hire. Who are they going to hire for Tom Clements? Or is that it? They just, you know, I know they promoted, um, you know, Turner to quarterback coach. And now they've got Sean Jefferson coming in as, as receiver coach. So is that it? I mean, do we get anyone else? Um, any other offensive assistance but if all right well then i want scott turner with kyler on the sidelines and i want instructions from cliff i want him prepped on what we're what we're running next time we get the football 
I want there to be, you know, Kyler's a chess player. He's, he's great at two, two moves ahead. Let's get him that info. Let's get his head, keep his head in the game uh, is my point. And also, <clears throat> um, someone's got to take charge and say, no, Kyler, we're not just going to run you from the pocket every play. We're going to move you around. We're going we're gonna to do what's best for the team. And I'll ask you this question. I'm starting to think we better invest in a another quarterback. Yeah, that was the thing I was going to finish up for that with. Um, what we're seeing from Arizona is that they've kind of, in a lot of ways, Cliff has kind of built their entire offense around Kyler, a lot of that skill sets. And we even saw last year um, with Brett Hundley, most of the plays that they made against the Seahawks that got that win at the end of the year were broken plays where he scrambled. And some of that is because clearly the teams needed some more help on offense. Um, but a lot of people said they thought that Arizona's passing offense took a step back this year. And I think some of that is teams recognized and did more work on how they had to play Kyler. There was more film out. There was more that they could do. Arizona's offense was so good at running the football. And a lot of it was built on Kyler scrambling on broken plays or whenever they would run the designed run options for him, teams just wouldn't be ready for it. And some of that is, you know, a big positive to how they were able to design that rushing offense. There was a big drop off in those designed runs, both after Kyler got hurt and also after Kenyon Drake got hurt. We saw how Drake, you know, he kind of caught on to the fact that he wasn't really you know running north to south and then once he got hurt it seemed like that there was just a lack of explosiveness and I think what the Cardinals probably need to do and they're looking at it is when you go cheap at certain positions and you have to then rely on them there ends up a lot of times being um, problems sometimes where it's unexpected the, the biggest thing as far as when it comes to Kyler and his mobility is the Cardinals with Bruce recognize hey we got to go out and pay Drew Stanton because he can run this offense effectively and efficiently we've seen with Chris Streveler that he was kind of a guy who I thought was put in and whether he did outshine Hundley or not in practice clearly he was not anticipating and ready for the game and that's something I think that needs to go on to Arizona of being able to get a true veteran who can come in and be able to deliver because if they're not able to that's gonna be a, a struggle for your team um, to have confidence in that guy like if and maybe some of this is recognizing, hey, things maybe were different if, um, you know, Straveler went out and was able to perform. But it did feel kind of like, and this is the same thing I feel like, is that when the offense didn't change for having the backup quarterback in, that to me was a bigger indication of, um, in some cases, the talent level of the backup, but also the prep work that went in. You talked at least about practice and some of the other things that were there. There's a great quote from Tom Moore. He's like, fellas, if 18 goes down, we're bleeped, and we don't practice bleeped. And it's like, yeah, that was <laughs> to some level. The understanding that I saw with Sean McVay was you saw deep shots that were there that were missed. You saw some other plays. The biggest difference, obviously, being that Wolford showed the ability to pick up some first downs with his legs on the move. We saw that again with Kansas City on that last third and 13. We saw it with the New England game with Cam Newton. I think what it just shows ultimately is the Cardinals are still working to try to figure out what exactly their identity is two years into the process. And I think the flaw in all of this is that, and this is something I think that, you know, maybe you can speak to as well, is 
whenever Cliff had to come over and was discussing stuff with Kyler, we saw the head coach thing pop up. Like uh, you said, Scott Turner having to be on the sideline. Scott Turner had to run over to Cliff when the team wasn't set up because he was talking to Kyler on the sideline with the um, uh, the Seahawks game before that kick that was going to be missed. They had to go over and call the timeout because the clock was going to run dead. I think that part of the issue we've seen is the Cardinals were in a no-win situation where you weren't able to get Cliff Kingsbury just to be your offensive coordinator, learn under an experienced head coach, go through some of the ups and downs, take some of those different experiences and learn from it. He's having to kind of go through that all by himself. And he put at least Turner in place so that the team wasn't, you know, going to be out of place. They still got the timeout. They were still able to, you know, get that second kickoff. But like you said, a lot of this is coming down to where he's not really had any type of ability to grow. And Kyler's in the same aspect, too, because there's not a true veteran quarterback who's been out there, who's played in playoff games, who's been able to do it before. Um, I think that this will be kind of the last thing I'll think of is when you look at that hard knocks, uh, there was the follow up with the coaching staff talking to Baker Mayfield. And he said, hey, like... uh, Notice he got in the lurk after five today, which means Tyrod Taylor. He's like, yeah, you know, I got in. He's like, yeah, make sure you're here before five gets in. And that's just was a huge example, I think, of how with culture setting and how coaching and all of that has to play in where Mayfield essentially needed to have someone who was behind him pushing and someone had to point out, hey, like, you're the first to come in and last leave. Now, Kyler has some of that nature automatically as far as his work ethic and his desire to be great. I think just some of it comes into where – the guy who Kyler Murray is and the coaching staff and the GM, they, I think are having where we're not seeing everyone be all on the same page. We're not seeing a guy like, you know, Cliff, who's Kyler, for example, yelled at those tight ends in the Seahawks game who weren't blocking for a screen or putting in effort. And then went to the guys after the game said, Hey guys, like, you know, I'm just competitive. I want to win. I think that's what we have for each of those things. Hopkins, as far as for one of those things, like, I think we've got great stuff. There's some of the core and key leaders on your team. I think that we're not seeing the same level of accountability from the GM or to the coaches. And to me, all of that really falls back on what Michael Bidwell and Steve Keim have is the opportunity to learn from their mistakes, to be able to grow, improve, and be able to kind of reshape this Cardinals culture and who they want it to be. And I don't think that that's going to be possible with the current GM and staff that are there. I don't know if it is going to be possible with Cliff. Like the the example I gave to someone is if Kingsbury went away to Sean McVay and spent a whole year there and was hired after that and got to watch and see under and, and, you know, sometimes you have guys who try to be Bill Belichick and they're not. This has been kind of one of those examples where Cliff doesn't really seem to have that other former type of mentor who's been a head coach who's done it before. Um, You're having to, like you said, listen to Kugler. I think what we're really going to probably see this season is the Cardinals are going to have to determine, are they going to be able to embrace kind of this new type of whatever the Cardinal identity is and have that reflect in the players they keep, the ones they move on from, being able to search out for what what kind of that Cardinal identity is. Because the Rams, by all aspects, I think they've at least figured out what it is and they have that. You see how they drafted Van Jefferson in the second round and then traded a bunch of picks for the likes of Jalen Ramsey. And they've, between Ramsey and Donald and finding a guy like Brandon Staley, he's leaving and they're able to pretty much easily promote another guy underneath. They've got guys that they like. The same with the Niners. Robert Sala leaves. They've got a guy who's right under there with D'Amico Ryans who they can promote. They have, um, you know, an offensive guy in Mike McDaniel they're probably keeping. What I think we need to see from Arizona 
is the ability to put guys in places that are able to succeed, not just from a talent perspective, but from coaches and coaches underneath. And I think the letting go of one of the closest guys to Cliff in that wide receivers coach, David Rye, who followed him from college, essentially, to me, that just shows that I don't think Steve Kime is on that same page. He's like, you got to move on from this guy. We'll find another guy we're bringing in here. I don't think that we have the internal cardinal structure that's there yet. And that, I think, is how a lot of fans are wondering, what are we going to see from this year, too? Well, what are some of your thoughts on kind of as we wrap up here, not just looking at the offseason for what the Cardinals should look at, but just the internal culture of Arizona. What is it that I think fans should be pleased with that they have? And what is it that I think fans need to be calling out? And maybe we get to be a little, you know, we were probably ahead of the curve on Steve Wilkes and Mike McCoy and the Cardinals themselves were not. <laughs> Trusting a coordinator who'd never had a top rushing offense to be this run first team and develop a young quarterback we were like hey this has never happened before you're trusting him with each of these things this may not work out well and lo and behold he's fired by the seventh game what can cardinals fans i think look at from a positive that we've seen and what kind of in the offseason do is the change that fans need to demand and seek if you know we're going to be looking at this cardinals team that's been sold as finally getting over that hump to actually getting over that hump? Well, it's going to depend on the younger players because they're the ones carrying the team already. I mean, with Murray, Edmonds, um, <clears throat> with uh, Buddha and Jalen at safeties, Isaiah, now finally they're going to play him, um, apparently. Um, Gardeck, God, is he good. I hope they sign him long-term, get him inked up because he can help us in so many different ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, the youth on the team, they're faster. Um, I think they're still young enough to want to win and make it a priority. I get the overwhelming sense, and I don't know if you did, but that there were a lot of veterans on the Cardinals who just as soon pack it up after 16 games. Um Yep, I kind of got that feeling. I got that feeling quite a bit from Peterson, just from – I don't know what happened with Chandler Jones to start the year. I'm, I'm assuming that something wasn't right because, you know, we'll get a good glimpse of that in his final year. But there were some players who stepped up and made it clear that they were here and wanted to be able to perform win games, likes of which being Hassan Reddick. And there were others who I felt like were – kind of in it and seemed like that played out for that. And, you know, every player has got their differences as far as when it comes to their health that I, I agree with you that they did seem like, and this is just kind of how it was is that the Cardinals and some guys who just were not willing to be there at 100% and whether yeah. that reflects on the players themselves or the coaching staff, it, it all comes back to accountability. Yeah. And I think that Kyler's got to somehow figure out ways to play hurt. Cause uh, you know, I mean, Russell Wilson, has learned it. I mean, he never really had to be taught it. Um, you know, I mean, Russell Wilson would have played in that game um, with an ankle. Um, you know, uh, he would have been back in there. Maybe, maybe getting it taped up for a series or two. You know, but but you know, that's my concern is that. You know, Cliff even says, well, if Kyler can't be Kyler, we're not sure if we're going to play him. Um, well, we saw in the Rams game, actually, you know, he played pretty well hurt when last year in week 17 against the Rams 
um, when he had the, you know, the groin injury or the hamstring or whatever, you know, um, Kyler needs to figure out how, how to hmm. uh, play through some pain. Um, otherwise we really need, if that's the case, we can't put Kyler in there because, you know, don't, if he can't be Kyler, um, then we don't want to risk it. Well, then we need to invest in a quarterback. I mean, nobody knows what we have yet with Streveler. I, I won't blame him for what I, I thought he actually did pretty well considering um, what he was dealing with. I mean, that Rams defense, if you saw the next week, um, gave Russell Wilson fit. Uh, brutal. I know. Brutal. And some of the same similarities with Wilson and our offense was you saw a dominant deep passing game and you saw Russell being able to run around like he ran for almost 100 yards on the Cardinals. And then you saw the same struggles when teams were able to get pressure and intermediate and give Kyler credit. He does not take sacks at the same level as Russ did. And he even came back in that Rams game. I remember, and this is something that goes way back but in the 2016 season I remember Russell Wilson had an MCL injury on his knee he had a knee brace and they said that that was kind of the spot where Trevon Boykin came in for the rest of the game uh he was just not good enough to come back in and he came back in the rest of the surgery with that knee brace and essentially had to learn more how to play out of the pocket and the Seahawks had a much bigger passing emphasis I I feel like that that was something we even saw in the Cardinals game up until two or three of the times where they had to do, you know, some either RPO options or others, and he just was not able to run at all. Like, we saw that, especially on that third and 18 play, whether that was a, a Kyler check or whether that was the play call. I don't, the idea, obviously, was we know that the Rams are playing in this long down to, you know, go on a passing play, dial up the blitz and come after it, trying to fool them, get them offsides, get enough yardage on a run play to go for it on fourth down. And, you know, Kyler, he gets the ball rid of a little late. Some type of thing gets blown up for the most part. He gets the ball off to chase late and then just kind of uh, groans, puts his hands on his knees, knows that he didn't get that ball off the best amount of time. But it was just kind of the mentality behind all of that call was, I think, a microcosm of the Arizona Cardinal season showing that they can make a solid running and rushing offense. But ultimately, that's not going to be where when teams are able to stop the run, and that's your identity. You have to be able to have a passing attack that's got a similar identity. And I don't think Arizona has had that yet. We'll see what happens in the offseason, whether that's, you know, a, is that a talent concern for that one where you have to just throw the ball up to DeAndre Hopkins regardless of some of these coverages because he's that, you know, type of a catch. He's that type of receiver. I think a lot of that is going to be depending on Kyler's development as a passer. How much of is Cliff trying to win now and not develop him versus just, all right, here's how we can win games. I think that there's going to be a lot of a level that's going to come in. And this off season to me is about adding as much talent as you can to win now and take advantage of the fact that you're the only team in the NFL or the NFC West right now that has all of your coordinators returning both on the offensive and defensive side. Seattle's OC is out. They're going to learn a new scheme. The uh, Rams, Brandon Staley, he's out. He's been trying to take Kevin O'Connell with him. Sean McVay seems like he doesn't want to let him go. Maybe they will, since that happened previously with Matt LaFleur was able to leave for the Titans OC job. You see even with at the Niners, Robert Sale is taking away their passing game coordinator. They're going to have to get a new passing game coordinator. There's an opportunity for the Cardinals with that stability to say, all right, we're just going to add talent. 
and the rest of it then will hinge on the long, young players and the likes of Kyla Murray and We'll see where it goes from all of there. The obvious answer, I think, at least right now, is you're going to have to figure out a way to win in an NFC that has all of these old and aging quarterbacks. And you're one of the opportunities of having a young guy. Because if the Niners or Rams decide, hey, we're going to move on and they find a talented young QB, suddenly it looks like you're going to have missed the boat for an opportunity to be able to have a dominant type of team for the next few years. And I think that's what a lot of Cardinals fans just are looking for is, can you get this team good enough to go and be a perpetual threat each year and have a shot at a championship? Yeah. When they, when we see the moves they make, we'll get a clear sense of the direction they're going in. I mean, they could go run heavy and, you know, add to the offensive line and then, you know, that would be a clear signal and would be in right in line with firing David Ray, but they're de-emphasizing the passing game in favor of more of a, you know, run first offense. That would disappoint me because I think that Kyler Murray is, you know, I just went and watched his uh, uh, big 12 championship game against Texas. That is a sight to behold. Um, God, was he good, and God, was he having fun in that game. And that was not an easy game. I mean, Texas was the only team that had beaten them. Um, you know, it was a revenge game. It was for going to the net, you know, getting in the Final Four. There was all kinds of pressure. And Kyler was just dropping dimes. And then when he took off with runs, it was breathtaking. I mean, he just played a brilliant football game. And um, I wrote this today in my article was that, if I could speak to Tyler, I would like to go through that tape with him and remind him that this is what playing fun football looked like for you. Let's bring this Kyler to the Cardinals next year, and let's let's bring this kind of offense with it too, where you know we're going to put all kinds of pressure on teams with with your arm, and not just dink and dunks. I mean, you're like wasting Kyler's talent when you're just ask him to throw these dink and dunk passes that anybody can throw. Um, but actually have him dialed in on, you know, on throwing downfield um, and stretching defenses out and making them defend every blade of grass. If they do that, if they back defenses off, this offense could be thrilling. But right, as it is right now, they haven't shown yet that they can – they have the answer to the zones that um, the short zones that the teams have been putting on Kyler. So, so it'll be interesting to watch. Yep. Their move. Putting too deep, make him have to throw and hit the intermediate and all of yeah. that. I, I think we'll find out this off season, whether that's going to be talent. You can start stretching the field with some guys who can get separation, or if we're going to end up seeing more of the same um, potentially maybe with a bit more of talent and offense and, questionable about what's going to happen with edge and corner on defense. Obviously the NFL combine will be different this year. Um, we'll be here to break down the Cardinals off season. This will wrap it up for us here on the revenge of the birds podcast. Uh, wanted to thank John for joining us earlier. He had to jump off at least. And, um, uh, Walter, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, just the insight that you give is so valuable. Uh, can you let your listeners know where they can find your content as well as, uh, you know, diagnose, digress with you directly with your Twitter account? At WBJ Mitch on Twitter. Love to have you as a follow, you know, follow you if you want to follow me. Um, and of course, at revengeofthebirds.com. Um, pretty much on there. Uh, 
four or five times a week with articles and uh, go cards. It's, you know, I'm going to get excited all over again once we start adding players. And, you know, this was a tough way to end the season and it's hard to dwell on that Um, and we'll get over it. But uh, there's a lot of talent there. You know, there's untapped talent there and the young players are the thing to get excited about um, on the Cardinals. They're the ones that I think can push the needle. And um, so let's put our faith and trust in them. Absolutely. Thank you guys again for joining us. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at ROTV pod, as well as at revenge of the birds.com. Make sure you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, places at least like iHeartRadio, um, Himalaya. There's all sorts of avenues you can listen to Revenge of the Birds. Uh, again, you can always follow Johnny at Johnny Venerable and me on Twitter at Blake Murphy 7 Thanks again, and we'll be back uh, next week, probably going over a little bit of just some of the offensive and defensive valuations. What did the players grade out as? Where could they improve? Um, that'll be all upcoming as we kind of kick off our off season with that analysis. Stay tuned and thanks again for listening in.